we're given everything we need on this earth. It's just we need to know how to use it and how not to abuse it. In my mind, the most important thing isn't brushing five times a day, isn't flossing nine times a week after every single meal. It is living the way we were designed to live. And the closer we can live to that standard, the less likely we are to suffer from diseases that are easily avoidable. Welcome to the Longevity Blueprint Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Gray. My number one goal with the show is to help you discover your personalized plan to build your dream health and live a longer, happier, truly healthier life. You're about to hear from a biologic dentist. Yes, you heard me right. This is different than a regular dentist. I found him along my journey to health as I decided to have my amalgam fillings removed from my mouth. I knew I needed to find someone well-trained in the safe removal so that I wasn't exposed to more heavy metals in the process. Today you get to hear from the guy who removed my fillings. We're going to discuss the importance of oral or mouth health for overall body health, talk about the importance of proper facial growth and airway development, and lastly we're going to get into the safe mercury amalgam removal technique which is the SMART protocol that was used on me, and even we'll talk a little bit about fluoride, needed or not. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of the Longevity Blueprint Podcast. Today I have on the show Dr. Ben Pospisil as a guest. He grew up in Mount Vernon, Iowa. He attended University of Northern Iowa as an undergraduate and completed dental school at the University of Iowa in 2004. He has been in private practice for 14 years in his hometown. Dr. Pospisil transitioned his practice to a biologic holistic dentistry practice in 2010, and he has since become a member of the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology, has taken training in orthotropics, facial growth guidance, and is a graduate of the Schuster Center for Professional Development and is an ambassador for the Dawson Academy of Complete Dentistry. That's a mouthful. (laughs) So welcome to the show, Dr. Pospisil. Hi, Stephanie. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for being here today. I feel so blessed to have met you and have you as my personal dentist. So let's start with you sharing your story, how you kind of got into biologic dentistry and really what that is. Well, when way back in 2010, I think you, you said I was attending a basically a dental professional's business school so that we could figure out how to run our practices because in dental school they don't teach us how to do anything regarding business regarding employees regarding anything other than how to drill on teeth i hear you on that yeah (laughs) yeah so uh i was at this business college or it was called the schuster center for professional development and a biologic dentist who had graduated from that school was speaking to us about his experiences regarding his dental career and how in his mid thirties, he was already feeling wanting to quit tired after just an eight hour day. Um, like he wanted to collapse on the couch at the end of a day. And I used to do scraping on houses. I used to bail hay hours and hours on end. I used to do tons of stuff as a kid. And I was starting to at age 28 at that time, I was starting to feel the same way already. And so what he was saying to me was really absorbing into me. And he was talking about how he transitioned his practice to a, to be mindful of the materials we're using, not just doing it because that's what they taught us in dental school, but really be thinking about what it is we're putting in people's mouths and the impact that it has on our own personal health as dentists and practitioners and hygienists and assistants. 
basically he was listing off a bunch of symptoms that he had shaky hands couldn't concentrate brain fog things like that and i was already beginning to see those types of things at their early stages happening in me and so it really scared me to be honest i i thought well i'm 28 years old i have to try to do this till what i'm 55 or 60. it's a long time to be sitting there exposing myself to something that i'm not sure what the ramifications are sure because it's odorless tasteless invisible the gas and the fumes that come off of drilling on those fillings is imperceivable until it's accumulated to the point where i'm starting to have issues related to it so it's, it's, it's it can be difficult to associate something that ha started 20 years ago and is happening slowly over time to now i'm having symptoms and so it's rarely blamed for very many things um, because it is a slow accumulative process so i just i just decided you know today's the day there have been better materials out for 30 years i'm going to stop doing it i'm going to start treating it for what it is and that's when i began my journey into the beginnings of biologic dentistry which that was the mercury amalgam filling removal was just the beginning of things it wasn't the only thing but it kind of opened up a door to a whole world of dentistry i've never known awesome awesome and i want to get into that we won't get to mercury just yet but <laughs> so in essence you were kind of evaluating well i don't want to develop these symptoms and i don't know what i could be exposing myself and my staff to so let's let's change the way we do things for us but then also for our patients and it sounds like yes. you've learned a lot along the way so let's start with, I know when patients come to see you, you essentially ask them if they want to keep their teeth. I mean, you ask them how committed they're going to be, which I, I love. I, in, a, in a different way, I ask that of my patients too. So um, tell me how you, tell me about that questionnaire, I guess, how you drill your patients when they first come to see you. Well, a big part of what the Schuster Center taught me was that in order for me to have a practice that's outside of what everybody else is doing i had to have a new patient experience that was quite different from what everybody else was doing which is basically what most people are doing basically the first time they meet you they're laying, you're laying back in a compromised position they say hi list off a bunch of stuff they think you need and the patient just has to either say yes or no and they don't even know the doctor so first thing is that we do is just really concentrate on a new patient experience and part of that is a preclinical interview where we discuss with the patient what their history has been it's a spectrum so it's not like you're either one two three or four but i do show pictures of people with level one mouths which are people who don't care about their teeth they've never been taught to have high regard for their mouths and they largely disregard their problems until they're so bad that they're unrecoverable. And those people end up with dentures earliest in life. And they um, end up with my own personal experience also living the shortest lives. And then, they, then the level two people are people who have seen level two dentists their entire lives. And so level two dentistry doesn't mean that the technical dentistry is bad, but what the problem is, is that the patient's never taught to understand why they acquired their problem or how to get past their problem. The dentist is largely a technical dentist and they fix teeth all the time. So I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way or any of your patients have, but dentists don't save teeth. Dentists drill on teeth. If you need dentists to 
drill on your teeth all the time, you're going to end up with no teeth. Mm. So what I try to do is help the patients understand that, you know, most of them are coming here as level two patients because that's the only thing they've ever been exposed to. They've never been taught how to be level three, but level three and above people keep their teeth for a lifetime. People below level three, level one and two lose their teeth. No matter how much money they spend on them, they still lose them. Um, 85% of people who go to a dentist regularly, regularly in this country lose multiple or all of their teeth. Yeah. Wow. So, if we're talking about whether or not dentists save teeth, dentists don't save teeth. The patient has to. So dentistry is done and done well. The patient then is taught to take care of their teeth like 95% of other patients don't or are unwilling to. And so when we get to level three, it's a predictable future. It doesn't mean you have a perfect mouth. It just means that you have a mouth that is under your control on whether or not you keep it. And then level four people are basically what the system looks like when it's working correctly. And they're very rare. I rarely see them, but I take pictures of them when I do, because it's like the rays from heaven are shining down in their mouth when I see them. Uh, it is basically no need for dentistry. So that's the difference with the office is that I really don't think that everybody should be put in a cookie cutter situation where everybody gets x-rays every year for the rest of their life no matter what their risk is um that's basically that's basically an insurance-based philosophy where the other one would be need-based philosophy you know um disease care versus health care so once we get to level three and level four patients rarely need me and they are on longer recalls between uh, appointments with me and their health care goes down costs go down over time which is really what health care should be is the ability to absolve yourself of a need for a doctor but the problem is is that people don't or rarely get there or when they do they end up being yours and my best referrals because mm -hmm. when you're healthy you talk about it Mm-hmm. So. You're you're probably a good example of a level four patient, huh? Because you've told me you haven't had to have your teeth cleaned in like three years because you take yeah. such good yeah. care of your teeth. I, I haven't. Yeah. yeah, I'm almost at four. Yeah, that's awesome. That's wonderful. Yeah. So let's talk about how reflective oral health is of overall body health. So I, I was taught this through my fellowship program. I don't know that all nurse practitioners or doctors are taught this, but even Mayo Clinic will state that gum disease or um, I can never say it. Yeah. <laughs> it's associated with increased risk of developing heart disease. So poor dental health can increase the risk of bacterial infection literally in the bloodstream, which can infect our heart valves, which is also why oral health can be important if you have artificial um, heart valves. Uh, but oral hygiene is important for everyone. So can you talk more to that, how reflective our oral health is of overall body health? Yeah, um, well, just getting back to the periodontal disease issue is that 70% uh, of Americans, whether they see a dentist or not, have some form of gum disease. So uh, it's probably even actually higher than that. So gum disease is just inflammation of the gums as a reaction, your body's immune system's reaction to having plaque on the teeth. And eventually that plaque causes such an inflammatory condition that it creates an opening between the, the mouth and the system, your systemic uh, blood flow. And so what we're finding is that almost everybody who has a heart attack, when you take the plaque that clogged the artery, you're finding things like calcium, bacteria from the mouth and fat 
And so when I talk to my patients about, uh, about gum disease, it's the same plaque that's on their teeth is actually the same plaque that's clogging their arteries. And why that is, is because when we have, when we have a, an ongoing infection, your body is, is most likely running in an acidic state. And, and when I see people with these with these conditions, they largely are, they're acidic in their saliva. And if they're acidic in their saliva, they're acidic in their blood. And the body's pH is very tightly regulated, as you know. And when it gets into a, a pH stress situation, it will leach calcium phosphate from your bones to balance that acidity. And the, the, I'm telling you that it gets into your serum. And that, what do you think's on the artery clog? Right. And so, and then you're talking about uh, fat as well, and um, and the bacteria themselves, and they are the same bacteria in the clog as that are on the teeth. So, if we try to compartmentalize our bodies into, I work on teeth, this guy works on hearts, this guy works on kidneys, this gal works on, you know, GI tract, then we totally miss. The and that's that's on us to because we're not communicating and overlapping all these systems that are so very important. So yeah, that's just the beginning. But then we could get into dead teeth and dying teeth and cavities and abscesses and how that affects the downstream rest of your body. I'll tell you that if you don't have a healthy mouth, you can't have a healthy body for sure. And that goes right along with your longevity blueprint, which is simply that you know all the systems are are designed to work perfectly it's that we've devolved into making our lives easy and with our foods with our with our everything is is set up so that we can make life easy for us but when we don't challenge ourselves it's just like when you don't lift weights or you don't ever work out you see atrophy and the atrophy can occur the same way in the mouth. It can occur the same way in the strength and the formation of our face and our jaws. And it happens in our bones and in our muscles. So the mouth is just, I just found that it's really the, the body, the mouth is just like the rest of the body. It's connected. And all the same ways that the systems of the body that we think we go to work out in the gym and we go to do all these things that are so healthy, but then we disregard our mouth. That seems like insanity to me. What you said elicited a few questions. So I want to go back to gum disease for a second. So how would a listener know if they have gum disease? Am I correct in saying if I'm flossing and I'm bleeding and there's inflammation there, is that, you know, is that telling me I have gum disease? There's no reason for anybody to be bleeding anywhere in their body when it's touched. Okay. Blood is expensive. It's red for a reason, I believe. And our brains, I believe, are also evolved to understand that red is danger. That's why we have it on stop signs and everything else. We should not be disregarding bleeding in our mouth any more than we'd be disregarding if we touched our eye and it started bleeding. So if we're flossing gently, that skin of the gums is keratinized just like the tip of your finger. And it should be as strong as the skin of your tip of your finger. So if your finger wouldn't bleed when you scratch it like that, neither should your gums. If they are, then that's the pro that's a problem, Houston. And we need to fix it because that's the inflammation. That's your body sending the troops, sending the inflammatory system to an area to try to kill bacteria. And it's no different than a bacterial infection anywhere else in your body. You wouldn't want to keep it. 
Good, good, good point. I want, also want to restate something you said just to make sure the listeners get this message. So you were saying if your body's in a more acidic state, your your body will literally leach calcium from your bones or your teeth to neutralize that acidic state because it wants to be more alkaline. Yes. So this also comes back to why it's so important to eat green leafy vegetables, to eat foods yes. to promote that alkalinity. Would you agree with that? Why are, and maybe speak Absolutely. to how diet influences our, our teeth, our oral health. Um, well, that's something I talk about in my preclinical interviews all the time is people are chronically acidic because we have we have moved away from eating the foods we were designed to eat. We're only chronically acidic because we have access to sugar anytime, all day long, every day. And when you think about our ancestors, they really only had access to, um, to sugary things seasonally when a fruit came into ripe, to being ripe. And so they didn't have a little snack here and a little snack there at the office. They didn't have the constant barrage of, of those things. So what makes a vegetable kind of bitter or whatever is the, is the alkalineness to it. So these different greens like kale, spinach, all those things all have their own alkaloid that they produce in order to actually protect themselves from being overgrazed. And so, you know, if you're a cow and you're sitting there in a patch of spinach, if you eat too much spinach, it will cause a bellyache. So if they then move to a different type of green, then the small amounts of different types of greens don't cause that reaction. So, you know, some people come in here and they're like, oh, yeah, I eat tons of greens and all I ever eat is, but I eat a ton of spinach and all they eat is spinach. And they talk to me about their their stomach aches or whatever well i i just encourage them to transition to different types of greens because those alkaloids were made for the protection of that plant but they're also alkaloids which alkalize our body so we need those things way higher numbers than what we need fruit all the time you know you know fruit is a great thing and it has lots of vitamins but it's not something we need to eat, you know, seven fruits a day, eight fruits a day in order to say that I don't eat sugar because the, what makes fruit sweet is sugar, mm-hmm. you know, and I want to encourage people to eat fruits, but just be understanding that, you know, the forest floor wasn't, wasn't covered in nine different types of fruit, <laughs> you know, it was covered in 20,000 20, different types of green plants mm-hmm. that were grazed by the handful when they walked by, you know, and it was done quickly and it, it, it we didn't need 10 pounds of dressing to eat it either. You know, we literally would take a handful, shove it in our mouths, chew it up. It challenged our jaws. It, it promoted facial development, full arch development by chewing those hard foods. And then we moved on to something else. So, I mean, that's the way I kind of think about the way I eat in my wife. It drives my wife kind of crazy. But, yeah, I just take a handful of that big <laughs> organic box of greens that she has and stuff it and walk on and keep doing stuff, you know. Me and you too. can do that, yeah. too. Everybody should. Yeah. I love raw kale. I must be craving or maybe I'm deficient in something that <laughs> is provided in greens. My husband laughs at me, but I love eating raw kale, especially fresh out of the garden. So good. Charred, um, too. Let's go back to flossing for a minute here. I fully admit, like many Americans, that I 
had previously never had a strong commitment to flossing, but I do now. I've been flossing <laughs> a lot more. Can you tell us what you tell your patients, how a lot of the surface area of their teeth is missed if they're not flossing? So can you can you speak to that? Yeah, you know, I, I can use this little model here, actually. We have a little model of teeth here, and if I take a tooth out, you can see that that's the side that you brush. There's just as much surface area when you turn to the other sides. So if you look at a tooth and you see that it's square, basically, if all you're brushing is the tongue side and the outside, then circumferentially, you'd only be cleaning 50% of the surface area of your mouth. And bacteria, you know, people take a lot of onus in trying to kill bacteria in their mouth. That never works. Listerine and things like that, those are to make you feel good that you think your breath is okay. But really, the bacteria comes back twice as strong because it also kills good bacteria. And that's not the point of how to absolve disease in your mouth. Bacteria colonies can't make be of disease-causing potential until they're mature enough. So if you never let the colony get mature and build a castle on your, on your teeth, then it can't ever cause disease. So basically flossing seems like it's worthless. Like what's it really doing? Am I really killing those bacteria? No. All you're doing is taking a little bacterial colony that's growing and it wants to grow into a pink and purple, brown and orange Cheeto colored colony is taking that and swiping the castle foundation down every day. And if you do that, they can never get to maturity enough to burn holes in your teeth or elicit a inflammatory reaction from your body. They just can't. You just knock down the colony all the time. And they also can't form cadaverines and sulfonamides from eating your tissue. So when you when you think you have bad breath, bad breath occurs normally on the tongue or from gum disease. And it's always happening because the bacteria that are in on the teeth when they eat your tissue, whether it's tooth structure or gum tissue, and the byproduct that they create is cadaverines and sulfonamides. And that's why your breath stinks. It smells like a cadaver. Mm. So if your, smell, your breath is smelly when you wake up in the morning, those types of things, we need to clean the tongue really well, and we need to clean between the teeth. Those are the, the main causative factors. There are some acid reflux and stomach factors that can, right. but those are fairly rare relative to, I'd say 90% of halitosis and stuff like that is caused from bacteria in the mouth. I get asked all the time, what's one product that I just can't live without when it comes to maintaining my own health and longevity? And my answer is something you've actually heard me mention on several episodes. It's called mitochondrial complex, and it's pretty much the Cadillac of multivitamins. And it's packed with antioxidants, including three key players, acetyl-L-carnitine, alpha-lipoic acid, and N-acetylcysteine. Think of a steam engine that requires coal to be continually shoveled into the furnace to power the train forward. Acetyl-L-carnitine does that for your body by shoveling short-chain fatty acids into your cells to provide your body with energy. This is an absolutely essential task to keeping you running. However, what's a byproduct of fire? You guessed it, smoke. Unfortunately, in this analogy, smoke from fire equals free radicals. To combat those free radicals, other antioxidants are needed, and that's where alpha-lipoic acid and N-acetylcysteine come in. Together, they scavenge free radicals and help boost and recharge glutathione, the most potent antioxidant in the body. To top it off, mitochondrial complex also contains a little bit of green tea extract, broccoli seed extract with sulforaphane, and even resveratrol. 
Research has shown that when athletes and individuals that are under stress begin taking this product, they are less likely to get sick as they're giving their body what it needs to conquer those stressors. Who doesn't need protection from stress and cellular damage at this time? I certainly do. I take this product every day. If you're interested in learning more about how mitochondrial complex can help support you living a longer, healthier life, check out my blog post on why antioxidants are important found at yourlongevityblueprint.com forward slash why dash antioxidants dash are dash important or in chapter four of my book, Your Longevity Blueprint. To get 10% off our mitochondrial complex, just use code energy when checking out at yourlongevityblueprint.com. Now let's get back to the show. Well, let's next transition to talking about the importance of the facial growth and airway development, which I had really never thought about until you mentioned this to me in my son's appointment, um, mentioning you encourage that we not let his jaw hang open, that we encourage that he close his mouth. (laughs) So I never thought of the importance of him developing his jaw muscles and not really just eating mushy food, but actually being able to chomp on some broccoli, chomp on some food as well. So speak to the importance of that, because I have a feeling that a lot of the listeners have never heard of that importance. Yeah, that's a good point, because I, as a dentist, after, I mean, it was 14 or I've actually been in practice for almost 16 years. I think maybe my bio said 14, but it was at year like 13 and a half that I heard anything about it. So if you're wondering if your dentist knows anything about it, there's a pretty decent likelihood he or she has never heard of it as well. So um, basically the thought is that there's two ways to look at underdevelopment of jaws. One is that, you know, you were given your mom and dad's genes and your mom and dad's genes might go for big teeth and small jaws. And so that's why everybody's crowded, right? Um, that, in my mind, isn't the truth. That's just an easy way to say you have crowded teeth, you need braces, right? That's basically the only reason is it's like an excuse not to know why something happened, you know? So there's a, there's a, area of dentistry called orthotropics where a guy named Dr. John Mew, M-E-W, he's 92 years old now. He was seeing that, you know, almost every case that he saw was that the maxilla, the upper jaw, had grown down and back. Now, our ancestors never had crowded teeth. You can't find a you can't find an ancestral skull prior to the agricultural revolution that there were ever crowded teeth. And rarely do you find cavities or gum disease as well. So, or crooked teeth, right? You've told me once, or crooked teeth. They all had crooked teeth. No, yeah. no. Yeah. The teeth. If you ever find a wild animal skull, you'll never find crooked teeth, ever. Why do eighty percent of young kids need to have braces in the United States? And the reasoning that I have come up with in the world that I have been exposed to is that we are not having correct oral posture and we don't eat the foods we were designed to eat. So oral posture would mean, you know, what, how, how are we supposed to hold our mouths? You know, does this look good or does this look better? Right? So the, the, the question would be, is this the correct jaw posture for rest with the teeth in gentle contact, the tongue to the roof of the mouth and the lips closed, breathing through our nose, or is hanging the mouth open and mouth breathing all the time the way we're supposed to be? Well, I would tell you that the only way that we create nitric oxide, which is 
um, a very valuable vascular pro proliferation molecule is to breathe through our nose. By breathing through our nose, it goes through turbinates several times, is filtered, and our, our nose... Um, uh, anyway, the turbinates in our nose can help create can help create nitric oxide and we cannot get that from breathing through our mouths at all plus the air is unfiltered and we're wondering why so many kids have inflamed tonsils and all of this stuff well if you get if they get sick when they're little kids and they develop a mouth breathing posture then the likelihood is that's going to keep going and getting worse and worse and worse unless we clear that and encourage a closed mouth posture and nose breathing because once you start trying to start breathing through your mouth it becomes a lot easier but where is that unfiltered air with all the toxins that we have in the united states and in iowa and everywhere else where's that air going basically the closed mouth posture nose breathing uh, challenging our jaws with foods and not and transitioning from breastfeeding straight into food with handles is um is going to give us the proper jaw and tongue development that we need to breathe and so that all of us are ending up with sleep apnea and all these other things later in life so speak to that last um, point you said so there is which i didn't know then a relationship am i saying this right between a smaller jaw then and sleep apnea when there's less think about the development of your upper arch the upper arch of teeth forms the floor of the nasal sinus okay so if our tongue is never up in that palate and it's the strongest muscle in our body it has tons of potential for spreading out the teeth, right? If it's never up there, your maxilla is soft bone, your mandible is hard bone, and the maxilla is just trying to grow to wherever the pressures are pushing it to grow. If there's never any pressure to grow up and out, it will always just start to do this. So that's why we need the closed mouth posture. You're, yeah, right? okay. tongue, tongue up to the roof of the mouth like when you're saying the word or the letter N, and, and then close the teeth and close the lips and, and nose breathe. And anyway, the, yeah, so if the jaw grows down and back, where are these lower teeth supposed to go? And then you see profiles of kids, and I challenge your, your viewers and listeners to look at teenagers these days, whether they've gone through orthodontics or not. Some of them have good, strong jaws, lower jaws, or has their face just melted into their chin. Yeah, their teeth might be straight, but have we ruined their face in, 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 in accomplishing straight teeth? Um, so the, the onus has to be on the doctors to try to encourage the arch to form as it was designed to so that the lower jaw can grow forward. And we have plenty of room for all the teeth that God gave us. So if you are a mouth breather, do you encourage like taping the mouth shut as an adult or what, what are your recommendations? Um, as an adult? I would. I, I, I do recommend that. We do want to make sure that we don't have obstructive sleep apnea already developed. So if we're if we're talking about encouraging a patient to do that, it's important that we at least evaluate the mal and potty score, which is the how close the back drape of the soft palate is, and um, and see. But yeah, I mean, I I mouth tapes periodically. If I start getting sick, I'll mouth tape because that helps me clear the sinuses. Sure. And concentrate on keeping my mouth closed, you know, drooling on the pillow, night sweats, getting up to pee several times a night. All these things are signs 
of sleep disordered breathing. And so sometimes people just say, no, I don't snore. Well, snoring is not the only sign of sleep disordered breathing. And so many people, so many adults have it, but we could have caught it long ago. And that's the thing is there aren't great treatments for adults and expanding the arches in adults. So there are some being developed at this time. And I just need to continue to educate myself regarding those. But really what the biggest thing is, is to catch the kids before they become underdeveloped. Because most orthodontic treatment is initiated after 90% of the facial growth has already occurred. So as as children, so as I watch my son develop, if he's hanging his mouth shut, the best thing I can do is just... Close his yeah. mouth. Close his mouth. Indians used to do that. They used to walk around a campfire and just tap the chins of the kids that were holding their mouths open because they didn't know much about jaw development, but they knew that the kids that hung their mouths open all the time were sick all the time. And Good the other point. ones weren't, so. Great tips. Well, I want to get into mercury and fluoride next. So let's talk about mercury. I know in your practice, you have learned safe protocol that's called SMART for removing mercury, and that's what you used on me. So before we get to that, I just want to ask your opinion on on mercury and if you feel like it's dangerous. I, I personally chose to have mercury removed from my mouth. And I think we, as you alluded to before, we both live in Iowa. We're exposed to all kinds of toxins like herbicides and pesticides. We all have a different um, level of toxic burden that we've accumulated throughout our life. And so I think for some people, maybe mercury is their only toxin, but for others, it's one of hundreds, thousands, right? So uh, for me, that was a decision I made to have it removed because I didn't want that adding to my burden. And that was a personal choice. And I'm happy that I found you to remove it safely. But what are your thoughts on mercury? Do you put mercury fillings in your patients or not? What What's your opinion on that? Well, the first thing I would say to you, um, in addition to what you just said, was that everybody has a different toxic burden and everybody have, has a different capacity for ridding themselves of these toxins. So you know about MTHFR and APOE genes and things like that and their expressions historically, whether they were expressed or not expressed as MTHFR positive or negative, prior to our agricultural revolution, didn't used to be deleterious manifestations, whether they were positive or negative. It's in the current age Yep. That they that that their expression has led some people to be sick and other people not to. So when I see people come into the office, some of them ha walk in and they say, "I have MTHFR. I have, you know, my my dad had Alzheimer's at 50 and all this stuff." <laughs> those people, th there's a lot of medical doctors who are not even familiar with those and what they should do regarding those. And now we're talking about patients that are almost more educated than doctors sometimes regarding right. the expression of these genes. And they are at higher risk because their body can't produce glutathione, which is a transport molecule for toxins to the level that other people can. So you could have somebody with a mouthful of mercury for 50 years, as Dennis put in in the 1960s, and they could have no symptoms. Conversely, you can have one person with one small little mercury filling feel like they've been hit by a truck every morning. And you take it out and it's like the weight of the world was lifted off their shoulders. So don't think that the person who's saying these things, they may look completely normal. Sure. And they may be struggling horribly on the inside. 
And so, you know, when we get to the mercury fillings and stuff, no, I don't place mercury fillings. I think that there have been better materials out for more than 30 years. So I see no need to place a an antiquated material that was developed in the 1820s in our teeth in 2020. I mean, that's 200 years ago. Sure. The, the mercury fillings were developed. We don't use do any procedure in medicine that's 200 years old anymore. I don't. I can't name one. Can you? <laughs> and so, when you think about it, why are we still doing that in dentistry? You know, the ADA patented mercury fillings in the 1800s, and so there's a link between their usage and their their reasoning behind continuing doing them still to this day. So I would just kind of explore that and think about whether or not there's any safe amount of neurotoxin to have in your body. I, I just seem, think it's insanity to, to perpetuate the thought that, well, just a little bit of mercury is okay, right? I don't think that's true. You wouldn't allow yourself to just play with a little bit of mercury from a, from a thermometer, right? right? Versus what about people who have every tooth from front to back filled front side, top side, backside with these mercury fillings? Is that just a little bit or what qualifies a little bit? Right. Right. So to me, there's no safe amount of it. I'm, I'm not trying to say that any, what anybody else is doing is wrong. I'm just saying for my practice, it doesn't make sense. And it's not even a reasonable thing. And my patients don't want it anyway. So no, I don't, I don't place mercury fillings. And when I remove them, I take the same precautions as I would if I was to do it on myself or my staff or my mother or my sister or my father, anybody. I, I use the same precautions with everybody. And there really isn't a choice to use the precautions or not to, because then it would kind of make it like I don't really believe in it. I'm just doing it because that's what you say you want. I really believe that it's not a good thing. So if you want me to not use those precautions, then you just have to go somewhere else. <laughs> so expand on those. So that's what you used on me. So expand on how this is so different in your office from me driving up the road to a dentist and them just popping out my amalgam filling. Um, yeah, not so, to, yeah, not to uh, mention, like, as you were talking about the mercury, if your mouth is full of mercury, with every chew, you could be releasing mercury vapors, right? Every day eating, you could be releasing mercury vapors into your mouth. So obviously, when you would be removing the mercury, also drilling on that, that's going to release more mercury vapors, right? <laughs> Tons of mercury. Yes, lots and lots and lots of mercury. So mercury gas is detectable in the mouth at, or is detectable, period, coming off of mer mercury fillings at 78 degrees. So... Mercury being one of the most uh, one of the most reactive chemicals on the periodic table to all things, um, it is highly susceptible to temperature, as you would know, right? And so it expands and contracts with differing temperatures, and that's how a thermometer works. And so, just because it's mixed with uh, powder of copper, tin, and silver, or um, some others, and sometimes zinc or whatever, but the just because it's mixed with those powders doesn't take away its reactivity. And so does everybody you know have a temperature that's above 78 degrees? Uh-huh. Yeah. So <laughs> if you have a mercury filling in your mouth, regardless of whether you're chewing or drinking hot coffee or whatever, it's always smoking a detectable amount of mercury fumes off of it. And there's a different um, damaging potential for different types of mercury out there. So mercury gas would be the second most damaging mercury um, form. The first would be methylated mercury, and most damaging is methylated mercury from 
like fish. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm going like to interrupt you real quick because for listeners, if they're wondering, okay, do I have high levels of mercury? We actually run a test at our clinic where we can separate. So if someone has a high mercury on their nutritional evaluation screening that we find in our practice, that doesn't tell me where that mercury is coming from, right? So it could be coming from fish. And if the patient tells me they're eating tuna five times a week, it's probably coming from tuna, not from <laughs> a filling in their mouth, especially if they only have one. But if we're not sure, if they have several, several metal fillings and they eat a lot of fish, we can run a, a mercury tri-test, which is actually looking at if they have higher methyl mercury versus an inorganic mercury, which would be coming more from the fillings in their mouth. So I love now, that I test. I have a question about that. The yeah. test that you run, is it like hair, fecal, what is it? It's all. It's blood, hair, and urine. It's all three. Okay. Do you do a challenge test, like where you're trying to get it out of the cell so that it's re- perceptible? or so that- Because some of these people with the MTHFR are what I call hoarders. They're not releasers. So they sure. would, they, because they don't have the capacity to rid their body of it, when they are exposed to it, they, they hoard it in their cells, their fat cells and things like that. That's one of the first places where mercury goes is fat cells. And right. why I believe that so many people have autoimmune issues related to this, because a lot of autoimmune disorders are related to nerve issues. And what, what's lining all of our nerves? Fat cells. So we have mercury on top of MTHFR on top of hoarding it on our axons of our nerves. Sure. And now we have, we could potentially have autoimmune disorders that really aren't truly autoimmune disorders where they're actually related. If you go up the line to things that we've been exposed to toxins. Yeah. So I was just if you if you try to push it out of the cells or if you try to yeah so I'll, I'll comment on a couple of things there i, I want to go back to mthfr genetic variants yeah. because we also test for those at our clinic but mthfr is one of several genetic variants you alluded to glutathione we can test for multiple glutathione snips right so the the danger that comes into play here is when patients have lots of impairment with several detoxification snips right then we know ooh this patient probably doesn't have the enzymes needed to to clear out toxins well so mthfr is one variant that many people are are gene that patients are becoming more familiar with and they get nervous if they have a few variants there but what i look at with my patients is even more than that we we run a 60 page genetic analysis and i look at okay what is the the burden of these these variants um because some patients with mthfr are okay that's the only not the only but one of the few variants they have versus others have lots Um, but to answer that question this specific test is usually not done challenged um, because the company believes certain types of mercury are going to be better excreted in hair versus urine versus whatnot. However, that's that's for this mercury differentiation test. If I'm looking at other metals, that, that test is only mercury. I do run another test through doctor's data, which is looking at lots of different heavy metals, and that one we do um, unprovoked and then provoked. So I have patients urinate. So we see just what they're spilling on a daily basis in their urine. Then we, we give them a chelation agent orally. They take that based on their weight. Then we collect metals that they're excreting. So upon provocation, like you're alluding to, if then they're dumping metals, we know, oh, they, they do have metals in storage because sometimes on just a basic urine test, we don't find anything because mm-hmm. metals are hiding in fat. But if we provoke them and, and then they dump metals, we know we have a bigger problem here. They are storing, they are storing storing those metals in in fat. Yeah, so are you finding like cadmium in Iowa and stuff like that in people's well, blood? And actually, cadmium people is, pro- yeah, I mean, cadmium is probably the, 
I would even say just based on smokers. So I can almost guarantee every single one of my smoking patients is going to have high cadmium levels. Yesterday, just on a basic unprovoked nutritional evaluation test, I had a smoker whose cadmium level was high. And I got to say to her, well, hopefully this will motivate you <laughs> to quit smoking because you can see without pr provocation at all. I mean, obviously your cadmium level was high. So I see that. I do see that a lot. Yeah. So let's go into this SMART protocol. So what precautions are you taking? I mean, you are dressing in full gear in your office. <laughs> Tell us the few steps you take to safely remove uh, metal from your patient's mouths. So the first one is that I have them uh, swish with a charcoal or chlorella mercury binding material of some kind because they're always off gassing. So there's a little bit of gas in your mouth right now. So let's go ahead and bind that up. Then we administer oxygen to the nose and we also use a rubber dam which is the most important part when i was in dental school we used to take mercury fillings out of people and we just stuff a cotton roll by the side of their tongue and i'd drill a filling out and i'd pull the cotton roll out and it would be like sparkles on a unicorn or something yeah it was just filled with mercury filings so then they, they had, their mouth was shining in the back i could see sparkles and then the patients yeah. feel like it's the patients feel like it's just saliva. So they go and then they swallow all the little filings. So the absolute most important part of the whole protocol is the rubber dam. It forms a gasket around your tooth. So the whatever water and filings come off are pooled in the in the rubber dam and we can vacuum those out. Additional to that, their face is covered. We have a high volume evacuation, mercury filtration thing called snuffy that sits by their chin while we're removing it so that the ambient air in the office isn't as highly toxic following the removal it's creating an aerosol so we're talking we're in the age of covid talking about aerosols our office has actually been more prepared for this covid thing than any other office around that i know of because we already had the filtration systems you being utilized for mercury safe mercury removal so anyway i'm dressed in a like you said a full gown that's disposable and i wear a mercury safe face shield with filtration mercury filtration because here's the impetus behind me doing this was to protect me actually and i thought if i'm going to protect me why wouldn't i protect this girl sitting next to me doing my assisting who's pregnant mm -hmm. okay that only makes sense that i would protect her mm -hmm. and then not lastly, but it was down on the radar screen at first. Why wouldn't I protect this patient who feels sick, right? So it, it only makes sense that we do the whole thing or nothing, you know? So at the end of it, we, we take the mercury filling out. I derobe, everybody derobes. We have a full-time mercury filter running in the office, just re recirculating air every hour. And then you swish again with the mercury or with the chelation swish and then we're done and it really only takes about 30 seconds to take one out it's the preparation it's like painting it's like the preparation is what takes all the time painting doesn't take that much time you know so and then you give your patient a mug that says i'm mercury free right yeah, yeah. well you know <laughs> I, 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 I fought with myself with that a little bit because systemically they're not, they may not be mercury right, in their mouth. right. So that's why I send them to you. Once yeah. I get the mercury out of their mouth, then they get... Then they have they, to get it out the rest of their body, yeah. 
that's so good i I hope i I think listeners will now realize that it's just not as simple as just going to a regular dentist to have these removed because in fact if you do expose yourself to more vapors you could be putting yourself at more harm through the removal process and you could end up sicker than you were intending to be which is wanting them removed so i think finding a biological dentist like you is just crucial to to regaining one's health if they have metal in your mouth i want to briefly talk about fluoride mm-hmm. <laughs> and your opinion on that as well. Is that something that you use in your office or no? Um, I do not use fluoride. I, I, we haven't, we haven't had a fluoride treatment in uh, probably eight years done in our office. I just think about fluoride as being a medicine. The dental world and the medical world have treated fluoride like it's an essential nutrient. The human body was not designed to need fluoride. We have acquired the need for fluoride because of our behavior. So do we really need it or do we need to change the behavior? So that would be kind of coincident with almost all medications Mm -hmm. that are meant to treat chronic disease. Uh, I don't like medication, so I don't want to say that I need medication, right? because of my behavior in one way or the other. So I'm not going to talk heavily about, you know, my deep, dark beliefs about fluoride. But what I will tell you is that when you absolve yourself of the habit, the need for the medicine goes away. Mm -hmm. So I will tell you, I personally, I am of the same boat. I just, I feel like there, could there be a time and place for it? Sure. But Mm -hmm. does everyone need it? Does it need to be in our water? No. I think many of my patients come to me with hormone imbalances. And so they're doing everything they can to get their hormones back in check. And so one thing that many of them have read about is the importance of iodine. And so when we're exposed to, you know, chlorine and, and well, fluoride and the bromides in our, in our breads, whatnot, we, those are all halides that can compete for binding sites within the thyroid. They can displace iodine. So when we have low iodine, we're at a greater risk of having conditions like low thyroid. So I think, mm-hmm. again, it's just another almost toxin in a way that can add to our burden that can leave us, well, hormonally unsound, but can cause other problems. So, uh, but I like what you're saying. There shouldn't be a need for it. If we can take care of our mouth, we have the right diet and we shouldn't need the fluoride. Well, there's no animal in the wild that gets fluoride, and I never have seen a cavity on an animal because I'm a hunter, you know. Yeah. And when I when I when I, you look at the skulls of animals, they never have cavities ever. There's no cavities in the animal kingdom in general, and so if there aren't, then why are we? It's because of our habit, not because we need fluoride. Exactly. That's great. Yeah. Um, what other tips do you have for oral health? What would be your your top tip for for oral health? Well, generally, I just tell people to try to eat a native diet, as close to a native diet as you can. We were given everything we need on this on this earth. It's just we need to know how to use it and how not to abuse it. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, the most important thing isn't brushing five times a day, isn't flossing nine times a week after every single meal. It is living the way we were designed to live. And the closer we can live to that, to that standard, the less likely we are to suffer from diseases that are easily avoidable. Love that. I've heard you say before that God didn't design our bodies to fail, right? We have the right, 
we, we have the right tools. We have the right food. We just need to be eating it. <laughs> well, I love to have that conversation. And one of the biggest ones that I always ask the patient is, do you think your parents gave you bad teeth? Because so many people, their parents and their grandparents, and they have familial denture wearers. And I have to dispel the thought in their head that they were designed to fail. Teeth are the, one of the most commonly perfectly formed organs in the human body. Mm. For a reason, if we can't eat, we can't live. And so if, when, if we can get out of our thought process that we are weak or crippled in any way by our genetics, then we, if we can't get past that, we will never, ever get healthy. Mm. You have to have a mental transition to, I'm designed to win, and yes. by darn it, I'm going to win. Yes. And you basically said we have to eat to live. And that's another reason why oral health is tied to longevity, right? If we can keep our teeth, which again is what you ask your patients if they want to do, and we can eat food, then we and should live eat. longer. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on today. This is so enlightening and very entertaining. And I, I think this is going to help the audience really reflect back on how important it is um, to take care of their oral health. They have to think about what's life going to look like years down the road if I'm not taking care of my teeth, if I'm not on a healthy diet. So I know you have inspired me to truly see my family's oral health as a representation of their whole body health. So thank you for giving us the tools we need to take care yes. of our mouths. You know, Stephanie, I want to ask you one question. How old are you? 36. How many years do you have left to live? Well, I hope I live into my 90s. I can't do math very well, but a long time. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So potentially 40 for 50, 50 some, 60 yes. some years. Left. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think teeth were designed to last a hundred years or more? Yes. Yeah. yeah it's, the that, it's the only thing that lasts in the, in the fossil record are teeth basically. So if we can't keep them for a measly hundred years, it's something we're doing. We have a it's problem. Not, it's not something that we're crippled genetically from. Right. So just keep it in mind when you're thinking about it, don't think about today being the only day about whether or not I have teeth or not. Think about what, the way you want to see yourself and be and function when you're 70, 80, 90, 90 years old. Because when you're when you're retired, those are supposed to be your best years, not your not your years with the least amount of dignity mm. and and joy. Because eating is one of the most joyful things we can do. And if you can't do it, you lose out on a lot of life. So mm. Well, thank you for being on a mission to help us keep our teeth. Thank you for doing what you're doing and offering Iowa your services. Well, thank Thanks, you. Stephanie. Okay. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That was definitely one of the more interesting interviews I've done. Certainly makes me want to floss my teeth, disrupting that plaque from building a home in my mouth, and just in general, take better care of my teeth so that they will last me a lifetime as they were designed to. Be sure to check out my book, Your Longevity Blueprint. And if you aren't much of a reader, you're in luck. You can now take my course online where I walk you through each chapter in the book. Plus, for a limited time, not only is the course 50% off, but you also get your first consult with me for free. Check this offer out at yourlongevityblueprint.com and click the course tab. One of the biggest things you can do to support the show and help us reach more listeners is to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I read all of the reviews and would truly love to hear your suggestions for show topics, guests, or how you're applying what you've learned on the show to create your own longevity blueprint. The podcast is produced by the team at Counterweight Creative. As always, thanks so much for listening. And remember, wellness is waiting.
The information provided in this podcast is educational. No information provided should be considered to be or used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always consult with your personal medical authority.